Can the life and ministry of Jesus be investigated in such a way today that the evidence confirms the historicity and deity of Jesus? Former homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace says yes, and in his new book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, Jim takes readers through an exhaustive investigative process that engages historical records beyond the New Testament. You heard me right, friends. The case for Jesus and his claims can be made without the New Testament. Stay tuned for my conversation with author Jim Wallace next on Soaring Eagle Radio. And now, here's Dr. Mike. Hi, friends. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Soaring Eagle Radio. As always, you can listen to us on the Truth Be Told Radio Network on WTTP-FM here in Lima, Ohio, and on our flagship website, SoaringEagleRadio.com. I'm reading from the back cover of Jim Wallace's book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, and here's what it says. Detective J. Warner Wallace listened to a pastor talk about Jesus and wondered why anyone would think Jesus was a person of interest. Wallace was skeptical of the Bible, but he'd investigated several nobody missing person cases in which there was no crime scene, no physical evidence, and no victim's body. He successfully identified and convicted the killers in these cases, even without evidence from the scene. Could the historical life and actions of Jesus be investigated in the same way? Could the truth about Jesus be uncovered even without a body or a crime scene? In Person of Interest, Wallace describes his own personal investigative journey from atheism to Christianity as he employs a unique investigative strategy to confirm the historicity and deity of Jesus without relying on the New Testament manuscripts. Jim, welcome back to Soaring Eagle Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a while since we last talked, and I'm glad we keep on talking about Jesus. So that's a- all good. Amen, brother. So this was a fascinating book. I, I really enjoyed reading it, and and I enjoyed your approach, how, how each investigative strategy um, – that you presented, you, you you weaved in snippets of your own journey to faith. I, I really enjoyed that conversations and in many cases that you had with your wife, um, along with portions of, of a cold case that underscored each chapter's content. Uh, your book has ten chapters, Jim, and I thought uh, ten chapters in a postscript. But but I thought we would just touch on each of those briefly, just to give our sure. our listeners a, a flavor of the book. And again, um, the book is Person of Interest. And, and friends, I would encourage you to go out um, coldcasechristianity dot com. Um, J Warner Wallace doc. I think that points back to coldcasechristianity dot com, though, doesn't it, Jim? Yeah, it does. And yeah. I just try, I just don't, I hate using my own name. Yeah. <laughs> something like this. So I've tried my best to just use a, a, our cold case Christianity. Everyone knows us for that book. So that, there you go. But yeah. So either that or person of interest book.com. That'll, that'll work also. That, that'll work also. And so you can get the book there, friends. I would, I would uh, recommend that you do that. You'll really enjoy it. And if you, 
if you like apologetics, you'll really love this book. So, so Jim, in chapter one, you, you, you reveal an investigative approach that you use to solve cold cases. And this, this same approach is, is well suited to investigating the person of Jesus. Now, you called this approach the fuse and the fallout. And that was the first uh, time I had come across that. And I thought, this is genius because it paints that picture for people. So as we get started talking about this book, Person of Interest, would you explain what this methodology entails, fuse and the fallout, and why it's appropriate um, to investigate Jesus in this way? No problem. Uh, so I encountered this approach and started taking this approach with no-body homicides. That's where you have a husband maybe who kills his wife and says that she ran off and you know she vanished. She, she we had a fight last night and she took off and she never came back. And so the first re- uh, responder is, takes a report for a missing person, and by the time it makes its way to, to an investigator's desk three days later, um, you know they will follow up on it. And you know, and he's con- by this time he's convinced. The family that she ran off, sometimes the family – I had a case for 30 years. No one worked this as a murder, and, it, and I opened it up again. But at the at that time, her, her family, the missing lady's family, had never called our agency because he had so convincingly um, got them to believe wow. that, that she just ran off. You know, that's, that She was the kind of person who would run off, and I thought, well, wow, that's pretty interesting, right? So but here's the problem. Mm-hmm. Now I've got nobody. I've got no photographs that were ever taken of the crime scene. Uh, I'm 30 years behind the case. Uh, it's the worst-case scenario, empty crime scene and no body. So how do you make a case like that? Well, and when you get to the point of making it to the jury and you start investigating this way from the beginning, you, just, you have to tell the jury, look, if this is a murder, something explosive happened that day, something terrible. Mm. And, and it's like a bomb went off. And when a bomb goes off, of course, there's a fuse that burns for over some period of time before the bomb is detonated. And then once that bomb is detonated, there's shrapnel all over the blast radius. So I'll tell you what. I may not have images of the day of the crime or any evidence from the crime scene, but I can tell you what happened on that explosive day by just examining the fuse and the fallout. So we, we, it's in a timeline. I can show you what happened in that fuse leading up to that day that she went missing, and I can show you what he did afterwards in the fallout of her being missing. And those two sides of the equation will tell us what happened on the day she vanished. And I thought, if you're skeptical like I was at 35, you know, I was not a believer. I was not interested in your stupid scripture. So, <laughs> so you had to come at it a different way for me. Mm-hmm. And, and if, I wasn't, if you weren't willing to look at scripture, you don't trust it, well, well guess what? You could actually make a case from just the fuse and fallout of history. Before you look in that crime scene of the New Testament, you could now look, I think the crime scene of the New Testament is incredibly valid, and I've written a book about that called Cold Case Christianity. But this is the opposite. This is to say, what if we didn't even examine it at all? How deeply has Jesus of Nazareth impacted culture? Mm. And can we reconstruct the story of Jesus just from his impact on culture? Can we, re- can we determine what was about to happen from the fuse of history leading up to Jesus? And that's the approach we're taking in this book, this fuse and fallout approach. Yes, and it's and again, friends, it, it is a, a brilliant approach. I thought, wow, this is so good. You spend um, three chapters, and we'll talk about these briefly, but... You spent three chapters talking about the fuse, the cultural fuse, spiritual fuse, prophetic fuse, and then a chapter, the explosion, when Jesus arrives, and then four chapters, five chapters, in fact, talking about the fallout from different perspectives. So so in those chapters, you're going to mention different strands 
um, different approaches um, to to the fuse and understanding. So, so chapter two addresses the cultural fuse. So the question there that readers will have is how does how does understanding the culture before and at the time of Jesus assist someone in building evidence toward a conclusion? Yeah, so look, we're looking at fuse, right? We're looking at those things that are leading up to the actual event. And if we weren't sure what that event was, we do know this. Our calendars change, and there's something we call the first century, even though it isn't the first century in which humans ever lived. But we call it the first century for a reason. Why? Well, we have to look at what's happening in the first century that might cause this great division of the calendar into the common era. So so what I would do is I would simply say, look, what's, some, things are happening culturally. You've got empires rising and falling. You've got wars being waged. You've got um, technologies being developed. You know, if you and by the way, if Jesus appears any earlier in that historic timeline, the story of Jesus is much harder to communicate. So, if we're still using cuneiforms and pictographs on clay, well, it's kind of hard to to have the depth of of communicative uh, ability with cuneiforms and pictographs. It'd be hard to describe, for example, a Sermon on the Mount using just pictographs, and in clay, it wouldn't last very long anyway. But by the time we get to the first century, you now have a Roman Empire that is distributed and has uh, kind of standardized the Etruscan alphabet, has kind of standardized a common Greek language that was used for trade, and now is using papyrus in such a way that these things can be recorded with lasting power. Not only that, you have an infrastructure of roads, tunnels, bridges, postal service, and the ability to move on those roads that was unprecedented. And even if you had good roads, for example, in Persia, which they did, they were limited to the region of Persia. But by the time the Roman Empire is in place, in that 200-year period of time called the Pax Romana, in which all resources are not being spent on war because we're in a peacetime, a unique 200-year period of peace, that now those resources can be spent on the infrastructure. So now you can develop the very roads that Paul is going to walk, which were not even available to him a couple of centuries earlier. So so what we're doing here is we're seeing that there is a window of opportunity so that if an idea is presented in this window, it now has legs in a way that it didn't before. And that's why it's tracing the fuse will give you – and I'll show you that this is really hard, and you know this. This is hard to, to describe, and that's why I have 400 illustrations in the yes, book yes. because I want you to see the fuse, and I want you to see the windows of opportunity in the timeline. But once you see them, I'm going to tell you it's hard to unsee them. And that's you right. look at that timeline, and you just think, wow, yeah, this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about Jesus arriving in the fullness of time. That fullness is really largely about the way that the both the spiritual, the prophetic, and the cultural fuse are aligning in a very special way. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. It's it. I thought that was a, a very good strategy to include all of those illustrations. Uh, it it really cements the 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 truths that you present in in in, in a reader's mind. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Chapter 3, Jim, you talk about the spiritual fuse. Here you discuss mythology, of all things, mythology. And, and I thought, well, here's, here's his, his uh, apologetics expertise coming to the forefront here, uh, discussing mythology, because in my experience has been, in most instances, detractors or um, unbelievers try to use mythology to undermine Christ. Here you that's right. you turn that around. 
the common God instinct. I think that's the phrase you use, the, the God instinct observable in all people groups and, and some of the common characteristics concerning God that are shared by all people. You touch on some of those things, and, and, and you also answer some of the most common objections. So, um, And those is – let me just give a couple of those, Jim, and I'll let you comment. A couple of those objections, folks, Jesus is a copycat savior. How many of you out there have heard that? that Jesus is a myth, uh, everything about him was borrowed from other mythologies. Um, some say, well, your, your faith is determined by, by how you're raised. And uh, one of the objections that I've answered a lot of times over the years, Jim, I know you have too, is the problem of evil. So, so that's in there. Uh, so, so anyway, dealing with mythology, how do you pull all of that together and use it to prove the deity and the historicity of Jesus? Well, as it turns out, if you read the mythologies, and I had spent some time doing that with a research assistant, we, we, we kind of went through all of them to see, like, what, what do they say? And, and are there, it turns out, if you read those mythologies, you're going to find that the ancient mythologies do share some commonalities with each other. Even the ancient mythologies from across the globe, in places you would not expect them to have any cross-contact, they still have some things in common. And, and so I listed all these things in common. I, I have a list of about 15. I think you could easily have a list maybe of more, of 18, maybe as few as 10, depending on how strict you want your list to be. But what I noticed is that the, each one of these mythologies had broad similarities. They're only broad, but they are similarities. So, for example, let's say that – I always use this example because it's so interesting to me – is that, that most ancient people, when thinking about God, share the expectation that the supernatural being they think of as God would be able to enter into his creation in a supernatural way. That's not unusual. That's a reasonable expectation also. And that expectation is pretty common. Now, how God enters in, the myth enters in, is different depending on where you are. So sometimes he's popping out of the side of a mountain, leaving a cave like Mithras, or he's coming and being birthed out of the thigh of another god, or he's being, for example, even Jesus is conceived supernaturally. So, so this is not an unusual expectation. Now, it's so broad, though, that, that you would not, you're not going to find the Jesus story amongst the mythologies. You're going to find broad expectations met uh, when comparing each mythology to, to another mythology, and when comparing the story to Jesus. And interestingly, the ancient myths only have that no one's got more than about 10 of these. No ancient myth possesses more than about 10 of the common expectations, and each one is different. I've got a chart in the book that shows which possess what. And then some of them possess as few as six attributes. So anywhere from six to 10 of these attributes, a deity will typically possess. And we sometimes don't have enough information to know if the other attributes are there, uh, but they may have been. But my point is, Jesus then shows up in history at that one unique time when the vast majority of these mythologies are still being actively worshipped during the Roman Empire, which had an interesting tolerance for gods. It would allow you to keep your native god if you were a conquered group just so long as you also added the, the Roman pantheon of gods. So this is a unique empire that does not abolish all the worship of other gods, but instead embraces them for the large part. And therefore, there's a large number of people at the same time worshiping their gods with all of these common expectations. And then who shows up in the middle of all that? Yeah. Jesus of Nazareth, the only person who possesses all 15 of those explanations. <laughs> so isn't that, and that could be just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. 
Or it might be that God is, understands the relationship between expected and expectors. You know, the, the better the, the expected meets the expectations of the expector, the better the response, because you're meeting the expectations of the expector. Right. And it turns out that Jesus arrives at a time when he meets the expectations of the broadest number of people who are actively worshipped. Now, remember, some of those gods are not worshipped very far into the common era. And so that they're still at that time, though, that he arrives. Yes, those common expectations were there. And Jesus then comes and matches the expectations. So I think it's another valid fuse you can look at, not to show that, by the way, if you think that Jesus, the authors of the Gospels, when trying to, like Matthew, trying desperately to convince a Jewish audience, it's pretty obvious how much scripture he's going to use, Jewish Old Testament scripture to make his case, that somehow they're going to cobble together a Jewish Messiah who is utterly pagan in his borrowing of pagan gods, I think is a ridiculous notion to begin with. But... But in the end, if God was trying to meet the expectations of the expectors, this is what you kind of hear with Paul, right, on Mars Hill. You people are really religious, you know? <laughs> you worship right. a lot of gods, even this unknown god over here, you know? But I'm here to show you who the real god is. And it turns out this god will match and meet all of your expectations. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Chapter 4 looks at the prophetic fuse. Here you discuss um, clear and cloaked evidence. Uh, I never considered that there was a difference before, but then I've I've never worked in in the field that you are an expert in, Jim. So what what's the difference between clear and cloaked evidence? Well, and this is something that bothered me with people who would always talk about um, about uh, prophecy. You know, they would say, "Oh, there's 300 plus prophecies that point to Jesus as the Messiah." You know, the odds of this, the statistical odds of this, are so remote. Well, first of all, I don't trust statistics to begin with, typically, because um, I've seen them misused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but more importantly, I was sitting in a, a, a service when I was a new investigator of the Gospels, and uh, this pastor, as a guest speaker, comes in and talks about these prophecies. And I'm, of course, you know, I got a brand new Bible. I'm looking through to trying to find out where he's talking about these prophecies. And so I'm reading them. I'm thinking, these don't seem to be even, if I was like, I mean, I don't know anything about the Old Testament, but if I was just reading this on its face, I wouldn't even think this is describing a coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. This sounds like David talking about David, or, or a psalmist <laughs> talking about a psalmist. I mean, I just didn't think there was any connection. Well, it turns out that there's two kinds of evidences in crime scenes. You know, there's clear evidence, and that's the stuff that if you've got a good database, you know, if you've got a fingerprint database, and I find a fingerprint in the crime scene, I can identify who the bad guy is before I ever knock on his door because he's in the database. So that points clearly to a specific person in advance of my meeting him. I know who he is from the onset. But there's also in crime scenes things like a pair of glasses or a button or something that's – you're not even sure if it's part of the crime scene. I'm not sure who it belongs to. Is it, is it the victims? Is it the suspects? Was it part of the crime? Was it here before the crime ever occurred? I don't know. So i got to figure out, like, how do I you know, assess this? Well, it turns out if I go later on find out that this, this suspect I've identified some other way – uh, ends up missing a pair of glasses, that this happens to be his prescription, or he's got a shirt that's missing a button, and this happens to be the button that's missing from the shirt. Well, now this piece of evidence that was cloaked in the beginning, and I wasn't even sure if it was evidence of a crime, ends up being very valuable after the fact. So unlike clear evidence that points to my guy from the onset, cloaked evidence will sometimes identify my guy after the fact in hindsight. So, so a lot of what you see in the New Testament are authors who are using cloaked prophecies to show that the button fits the shirt, mm. and and that's fair. That's actually a legitimate uh, approach to using evidence. I, I certainly wouldn't say, well, I don't know who this button belongs to, so let's just kick it out. Let's just throw the trash. 
No, we're going to photograph it and collect it because it might be useful later. And so what we're doing with cloaked prophecies is saying, you know, after the fact, these do make a case because these are the buttons that fit the shirt of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Friends, I am speaking with Jim Wallace, Dateline featured cold case detective, author, speaker, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University and Southern Evangelical Seminary, his new book, Person of Interest. Jim, you also talk about in this chapter, you talk about uh, reliable informants. Now, most people have an understanding of what an informant is from the television. But what do you mean by reliable informants? So you're looking at, you know, a reliable informant is somebody who I've used in a case in the past, and their information they gave to me was demonstrably true. So I've got a case, and he says, yeah, you know, Mike Brown, he, he's doing garage burglaries. And then we get our surveillance team up on Mike Brown, who we didn't even know before. And sure enough, as we're watching this guy, he does a garage burglary. And we're thinking, okay, this is good information. <laughs> so now that he goes to jail, and now a year later, the same informant comes back and says, no, you know, Jim Wallace is doing robberies. Well, you know, he's already demonstrated to us that he's reliable based on, on past information that ended up being good. And so he's got a different status in our eyes, both as investigators, but even in the court size. There are you know, confidential informants, CIs, and there are confidential reliable informants, CRIs. And those reliable informants are giving us different uh, approach. We view them differently because of their past reliability. So it turns out if you're somebody in the Old Testament who's a prophet, not every prophet even makes a claim about a future historical event, right? I mean that doesn't always happen. Right where somebody even makes a claim about the future. But some do, and if they do that about a future historical event, and then we know from history that that event actually occurred, it seems to me we ought to give them a different form of status, right? They've been demonstrated. If you didn't trust what they were saying about the coming Messiah, uh, you, you should trust them based on the fact that they were reliable about history. And so I've listed those separately, and what I'm trying to show is in this book, and I'm really trying to look at the stuff that's kind of hiding in plain sight, because I've written, I've read a lot of, of different descriptions about um, prophecy and about the prophets, but it seems to me as an investigator there are, should be certain categories of informants, and there should be certain categories of prophets. So just for sake of argument, do I think, by the way, I would use a confidential informant even if he's not a confidential reliable informant? Yeah, I would still use him. Uh, I think I just have a different level of confidence, but I would still use that informant. And the same is true with these prophets. I mean, this, this does, not, does not minimize their value. I'm just suggesting that these, if you were going to make an argument uh, and you had somebody who was more skeptical about this, well, then limit your argument to the reliable informants who are telling you something that's clear rather than cloaked. And it turns out if all you did was look at the clearest messianic prophecies from only the reliable informants, there's only a handful of those. Um, then you're still stuck with Jesus. I mean, no matter how you cut the Jesus pie, you're kind of still stuck with Jesus. So, so I think in the end, the strength of that case, and what I try to do in the book is to make it visual so you can see in the timeline when the prophecies are being made. Now, I did that. I've never seen anybody else do that, but for me, it was the first way I looked at it because my question is, why does Jesus come when he comes? And it turns out the prophecy issues are a part of it. You know, you don't go and arrest a who until you answer that that's only one of the investigative questions, the who question. You don't go and arrest who's until you've answered the first five questions, the what, where, why, how, when. Those questions lead you to a who. 
Well, if you were to divide all of the prophecies and put them on the timeline where they occur, you'll see exactly when in the history of Judaism the first five questions are adequately answered so you can answer the who question. And so if Jesus shows up a thousand years earlier and he wants to make a case, the gospel authors want to make a case for Jesus from prophecy, well, good luck with that, because it turns out a lot of those five investigative questions haven't yet been answered historically. But once they are, and you get to the first century, well, you're really now kind of ready to to, to use the prophecy to make a case. Yes, that's right, yeah. And that prepares readers for chapter 5, the fullness of time. Jesus arrives, so in other words, you, you have the explosion that you've been building toward. The fuse has been lit and burning for a while. In, in chapter 5, Jim, you discuss the timing of events and their importance, and, and your research shows that the timing of the birth and ministry of Jesus falls within what you term a spiritual red zone. Now, what do you mean by that phrase, and, and, and how does that relate to the cultural and prophetic strands that you introduced readers to in previous chapters? Yeah, now this is a really hard chapter to describe on the radio, because <laughs> this is entirely visual. I mean, yeah, once you yeah. see—so here's what I always say. Um, the conditions of a suspect um, provide certain uh, prerequisites have to be met. If the suspect wants to kill his wife with a certain weapon, but he doesn't own it yet, well, then he has to go out and buy the weapon. Mm-hmm. So he cannot kill the, 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 his wife until he has the weapon. If he wants to dispose of her body a certain way after the fact, he's got to get those materials together. So it turns out there are certain preconditions for any uh, case, dependent on the suspect, that have to be in place before there's any window of opportunity because he's not prepared yet. And then there are often uh, conditions he's trying to work in front of. You know, if he doesn't want her to take that job the next January, and she wants to kill her, to kill her, kill her before she takes the job, well, now he's got a, a condition he has to meet before, a deadline, basically. So what you do is you just uh, add up all the preconditions and add up all the deadlines, and you'll see a little window of opportunity for this particular suspect, because every suspect has his own preconditions and his own deadlines. You can tell, okay, look, for this guy, he'd have to kill her within this period of time. And if she does end up being killed within that period of time, you probably got the right suspect. Okay, so this is called a red zone in my thinking, and I've got a friend Scott Hansen at the Red Zone at the NFL Network. I thought it was kind of funny that we use the same terminology. So he's one of the endorsers on the book, though. So it's kind of funny. But anyway, the point is, what I'm trying to do here is to show that there's actually a red zone for Jesus that is developed by the the, the fuses that line up. If you overlap, you've got to see it to kind of understand where it comes in. But if you overlap. The opportunity that is available uh, in, in culture for that in that 200-year period of peace in the Roman Empire, when you've got all those preconditions of, of alphabet and language and papyrus technology and roads in place and all of the postal service in place, everything's ready. Well, you get a red zone. And then if you overlap that, the red zone of spirituality, when, when are all those deities worshipped at the same time so that when he mm-hmm. arrives, he can meet their expectations? Well, overlap that part of the red zone. Then overlap, for example, the, the prophecies that kind of describe, like Daniel's got a pretty strict prophecy there of when the Messiah will show up. Well, put that on your timeline. Well, you end up with a red zone that is so small yeah. that it occupies about 100 years on the timeline. Mm-hmm. And when does that happen to fall? Right at the beginning of the uh, of the about thirty years prior to the first century, yeah. until about seventy years after the first century is inaugurated, mm-hmm. and who lives in the middle of that ninety nine years? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, he occupies the middle third. Yes. Now that's something that you, you I mean that's when you see that, mm-hmm. 
This is not me saying, okay, I've got to work around Jesus and figure out how I can get a red zone around Jesus. No, independent of Jesus, you will develop that red zone. That's right. Yeah. It just falls there. It does. Given those three strands. And then you're stuck with this red zone, and who falls right in the middle of it is Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. This is exactly how I discovered it. It was not by saying, okay, I'm trying to account for Jesus. No, I'm just trying to account for the fuses, and they lead you to that red zone. So the same way a red zone can be used to make a case for a suspect in front of a jury, you can use the red zone here of history to make the case for Jesus in front of the reader. Yeah, yeah, and that's a powerful graph. I'm looking at it, in fact, Jim, in the copy of the the book that that you sent me, page 111, the red zone, 29 B.C. to 70 A.D., um, that's pretty tight window yeah. <laughs> for that to happen. Yeah. It's a very tight window. It's a very so I tight think in window. the end, you can, you can kind of look at this, and, and look, are there ways you can kind of cut this in other angles? Of course there are. But again, remember, what we're doing here is what we do in front of every criminal jury, because we are making a cumulative case. So I would never suggest that any one aspect of the fuse or any one aspect of the fallout is definitive because it's not. I mean, I've been fooled by one piece of evidence in the past. And that's why I don't do that anymore. I, I will let the, the weight of the entire cumulative case sit on my thinking for a while mm-hmm. until I determine, okay, I, this is now almost absurd to deny the power of this cumulative case. It's just too much to ignore. Yeah. And that's what we're kind of doing here is we're taking the strength of many aspects of both the views and the fallout to make a case for Jesus. Yes, amen. Amen. So a couple of chapters leading up, the fuse is burning. Chapter 5 is the explosion. Jesus arrives on the scene in that red zone that was that was um, formed by taking all of the evidence into consideration. And so you move on from there, chapter 6, and you begin to examine the historical fallout. So after the explosion, what fallout is observable after the birth and ministry of Jesus? And in that chapter, you present evidence from three different groups, which I thought was very wise. First group, Christians who liked Jesus. Second group, non-Christians who liked Jesus. And third group, non-Christians who disliked Jesus. So what can what can people right. determine from an objective look at the evidence from those groups? Well, a lot of this came, came out of my own experience as a kid, as a high schooler, when Elvis Presley died, right? Because I've always been amazed at the interest in Elvis. Now, maybe it's waning because, you know, let's face it, that generation is getting older. Um, but most people recognize that Elvis was somebody at one time. And it turns out that more books uh, – I can't believe how many books have been written about Elvis. I mean, every year since he died – it's been 40 years, I think, now more than 40 years – um, every year since he died, there's been at least one to four books written about the life of Elvis. Can you imagine? Well, it's because of who he was. He, at the time, he held so many records. And those books, if you look at them all, as they age, as you look at the earliest ones through the oldest ones, you'll see that they're written by the same kinds of groups, you know, like Presley's, who um, liked Elvis, uh, non-Presley's, non-family members or close friends who also liked Elvis. And then you have people who were not friends or family of Elvis who didn't like him and just wanted to leverage his name, and they wanted to write salacious things about him. Okay, so you have those three groups of Elvis books. Well, the same kind of thing happens with Jesus. And so you have the church fathers, for example, who are Christians who like Jesus. And you can record, see what they say about him. And the first, you know, if you said, okay, I, I don't trust what becomes of Christianity once it becomes the religion of the Roman Empire because power corrupts and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. 
So let's take a look at what is being written about Jesus in the 320 years before it becomes a religion of the empire. And during that time, there was a period of, of several periods of persecution or pressure or intolerance toward Christians, and, and so much, in fact, that there had to be an edict in Milan that basically said, hey, uh, stop the hostility against Christians and stop stealing our property, and there had, then eventually it was an edict in Thessalonica that says that it's the religion of the empire. Okay, so before, if you go before that, you will see that there are Christians who like Jesus, the Church Fathers, and you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the Church Fathers. Now, to the degree to which you can do it, I think it's been overstated in some apologetics books, and I've never tried to do that, but here I'm just going to show you what you can reconstruct, and you'll see this in our case notes for this book, and so that that's just a way that we can you know reconstruct the story from Christians who like Jesus. Mm-hmm. You can also, of course, reconstruct the story of Jesus from non-Christians who like Jesus, and you think, well, who's that? Well, all of the Gnostic, I, I consider all of the Gnostic authors of the non-canonical um, Gospels to be in that group. It's it's not as though you could call them Christians based on their beliefs about what it is that saves you, the identity of Jesus, some of the basic doctrinal beliefs that Christians hold, that the Church Fathers held, are not held by the Gnostic authors. In fact, that's why you have so many Church Fathers who write things about the Gnostic authors and try to dispel those lies. So, so you, they're, but they do like Jesus in the sense they want to embrace Jesus in their own worldview to kind of influence their followers. They want to co-opt the force and power of Jesus and his teaching to, to create systems of their own featuring Jesus. And so that, they, they fall in this category of, of non-Christians who like Jesus. Now, of course, there's also a bunch of either Greek or Roman or Egyptian or, or Persian or Jewish writers in the first three, four centuries that are not Christians, and they don't like Jesus, and they will tell you that pretty quickly. Those voices on ancient manuscripts are pretty derogatory. Uh, they're often persecuting the followers of Jesus. So the, the point is, those three groups, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. Now, this is not to say that those are primary documents, because of course they're not. But here's what's interesting. Jesus caused a fuss. And unlike other people in the first century who lived, there's not near as much written about Nero in the first four centuries as there is about Jesus. Mm, yeah. Now, why? Mm-hmm. What, what is it about Jesus that causes the big fuss? So I think that what's interesting about the Jesus story, again, is that it's not just that he has impact, that you can reconstruct the story from the impact. And as a matter of fact, if you were to go into further out in the literature, you'll see that so many classic books are, are written by Christians about Jesus, and that, that more books have been written about Jesus as an historical figure than any other historical figure in the, the history of figures. And this is true based on databases in the you know uh, National Archive, the, the, the Library of Congress, which is supposed to be the largest collection of, of volumes of books. And then you also can just do it on a basic internet search, which is much more global, uh, like Google Books. You're going to be stuck with Jesus as the, you know, he has oversized impact on literature, mm-hmm. even to the point where fiction is written, not even fiction about Jesus or about Christianity, in which the characters uh, have the rough outline of the Jesus story. This is a genre in fiction called Christ figures, and these Christ figures are, are pretty common. I've got a list in the book. You'd be amazed, and you'll start to see when you go, oh, yeah, that's true. That guy really is kind of like Jesus. Well, the idea here is that the story is so um, powerful that it, it begins to, to penetrate even folks who, by the way, why would you be surprised? We're all designed in the image of God, and if God was to arrive on the planet uh, and present his image to us, we probably would end up repeating the image if we don't like him. And sure enough, that's what you see in, in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So 
Chapter 7 then deals with the imagination fallout. Here, here you talk about the influence of uh, Jesus in the arts and music um, and uh, architecture. The evidence in, in all of those fields and more is, can I use the word impossible to miss? Unless, of course, you, you, you just don't want to see it to begin with. But it's, it's really hard to deny, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, I think that, and this again, this is unfortunately one of those areas where I tried to, to draw it because I think you need to see it. Mm-hmm. I think you need to see it to get a sense of how much we're talking about here. And in fact, what you'll see is that there's a it, that Jesus gives um, kind of gives birth to um, a worldview that is so inspired that there is no other figure in, the, in, in history who has the impact that Jesus has on the arts, um, on music. The entire story of Jesus can be reconstructed just from the hymns sung by Christians in the first three centuries. Um, the entire every episode of the Gospels can be reconstructed from art before the Dark Ages, before the Middle Ages. You're going to be stuck with the person of Jesus. You'd have to destroy a lot more than the New Testament to destroy the mm. the image of Jesus from history. You'd have to destroy so much. Um, um, architecture and art and music, even in a popular music today, if you just examine, I did this in the book, look at the top you know, um, three databases that give you the top uh, 100 artists in the last 100 years. You'll get a list of about 150 because these lists are slightly different. And if you look at those 150 artists and simply Google their catalogs and look for their catalogs, you'll find that, that none of them, I mean, all but I think two, have sung a song about Jesus, often uh, in praise, but many times a derogatory song. So Jesus can infuriate some and inspires others. But the reality of it is, is that he's not ignorable. I mean, it's very it's hard to ignore who Jesus is, especially given uh, the impact he's had on 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 culture, on music, and on art. Yeah. And you can reconstruct the story from that input. That's the that's the most important thing. I'm looking for those areas. That not just where Jesus has impact, right, where he has a huge impact, but that he has an impact that is leaving fingerprints I can trace. Because, again, the question is, wow, there's this guy who seems to influence a lot of artists, a lot of musicians. What's the story with this guy? Well, you can reconstruct the story with this guy from their personal writings, from their songs, from their images. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus. It wouldn't be hard. You'd have to basically deconstruct the entire history of art and music and architecture in order to erase the the information we have about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Amen. Chapter 8 investigates the education fallout, and I like the quote that you led this chapter off with, um, a Max Planck quote. And here's, here's what it was. It said, um, it was not an accident that the greatest thinkers of all ages were deeply religious souls. That was a wonderful, wonderful statement. Jesus was the catalyst for education as a, as a God-honoring pursuit, especially in America, wasn't he? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, if you look at the history, it's not as though ancient peoples did not educate themselves in one way or another 
with one form of institution or of course they did but if you're thinking of like the university the way you think of it today modern universities that have a campus in which there's a body of students that that are visiting a, a resident faculty that is teaching them and once they finish their they, they complete their course of action uh of course of study they are awarded a diploma certifying their completion okay that's that's a that's that comes straight out of the traditions that started in the monasteries that, that continued through the cathedral schools and then emerged in the first three modern universities at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford that are founded by Christians. And and then you, from those first, I think, 24 more emerge or birthed from those first three, and those become the, 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 the locations and the universities from which the scientific revolution explodes. And if all you did was just go and visit those um, those universities. By the way, the top 15. If you Google them today, oh, I want to send my, my son or daughter to the the best universities in the world. Well, get the list out. The list is going to include the top 15 on that list of the best universities in the world today. Were all founded by Christians, as of this year. I mean, this is what the statics, what the uh, the rankings show. And if you were to go to those campuses, and just look at the buildings that were originally used, they're still there, that were originally used to teach students, and look at the charters for which these students, these schools were founded. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from buildings and, 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 and statements, from structures and statements. You can. Um, so I did that in the book to show you how much information you can get from campuses you'd have to destroy in order to eliminate the, the story of Jesus. And, and these campuses played a huge role in the, in the science chapter. Now, you really, again, this is one of those things you have to kind of see, because you have to see how many scientists we're talking about, because I've illustrated it. And and the, our impact, the impact of Christians who held a Christian worldview and were led the scientific revolution and founded more scientific disciplines than any other group combined is Christians. It cannot be uh, understated. Uh, this is uh, remarkable. If you, I have a list in the book. Uh, that shows the scientific disciplines that have been founded and fathered and initiated by Christ followers. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And we have to make a decision. Because, you know, Muslims have played a, a huge role in the sciences from the inception of Islam to about the 12th century, and now you don't see that kind of impact anymore. That's right. yeah. Well, why? Well, it was largely theological in their view of the Quran and natural revelation. So how do we you know what, what, what's the point in, in examining the natural world if all the information we, we need is inside our scripture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we have to be careful as Christians not to make a similar take a similar approach now, especially when a lot of why we're reacting to science is based more on our view politically and what we I think is happening politically than it even is um, you know uh, has to do anything with science. Let's just be careful and not allow ourselves to slip out of that position of prominence. That we've held for so many years. And by the way, if all you had were the personal journals of the top historic scientists in the history of science, they write about Jesus. Mm-hmm. They were Jesus' yeah. devotees. Yeah. And you could That's reconstruct right. the story of Jesus if you wonder what's, what inspired these men mm-hmm. and women. That's right. You could find that out in their personal journals, and you would then again recapture all of the data you need to know about Jesus. So you would at least know what it is that is a catalyst for the, for the sciences. Yes. Yeah. Friends, if you'll go to coldcasechristianity.com under the books tab, coldcasechristianity.com under the books tab, what you're going to see is very encouraging because for, uh, well, for cold case Christianity, uh, there is a cold case Christianity for kids. So talking, we were talking about curriculum and education and how Jesus has inspired that down through the years. I'm thankful to see this. God's crime scene. There's also a God's crime scene for kids. 
uh, forensic faith for kids. Again, the website, friends, is coldcasechristianity.com. If you've not read Jim's books, get a copy for yourself and then pick up the, the same thing for your children. Go through it together. That might be a great opportunity to, to really teach and, and mentor your kids in, in how to defend their faith. I, I, it's a great, great way to do that, I think, Jim. Well, we touched on science, so, so, so we won't, we won't uh, talk about that anymore. But Chapter 10 covers the exaltation fallout. And Chapter 10, you present your research that supports the fact that, that Jesus matters to religious believers all over the world. Now, I thought this was another brilliant strategy all over the world, friends. Not just Christianity all over the world. We're talking Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. Jesus' impact on nearly every faith system is evident. It's, it's clear to see, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it probably wouldn't surprise anybody to find that the, the religions that follow Jesus in history end up having to do something with the person of Jesus, right? They've got to acknowledge mm-hmm. him in some way because he's so overwhelmingly influential by that time. So Islam, for example, you'll find Jesus on the pages of the Quran. You'll find Jesus on the pages of Ahmadi Muslim scripture. You'll find Jesus on the pages of the Baha'i. You'll find that the, that the leaders in the New Age movement will often refer to the teaching of Jesus. Okay, all those things that follow Jesus, historically, end up hat-tipping Jesus. But what's interesting is, even the systems that precede Jesus end up at some point accommodating him by merging, mentioning, or modifying their beliefs to accommodate him. So there's a room for, for example, in Buddhism and in Hinduism, for Jesus could be seen as the kind of enlightened teacher that would fit within both of those traditions, and the religious leaders in those traditions will often mention Jesus in such a way. And they'll talk about the teaching of Jesus. So if all you had were the scriptures and teachings of leaders of non-Christian religions, both those that precede Jesus and those that follow Jesus, you can reconstruct an outline of the Jesus story without ever referring to any Christian scripture or Christian evidence from, from culture. So if you're in a place in the world in which Christianity is not the majority religion, and say it's Buddhism, but you do or you are aware of the teaching of some of the most significant Buddhist teachers in the last 200 years, you're going to pick up tidbits about Jesus that you can use to reconstruct the Jesus story. In other words, he fits within the construct. He could be seen as somebody on his way to Buddhahood. He could be seen in that way and described in that way. Meanwhile, even though some of these people preceded Jesus, Jesus says, there's, I'm the only way, the truth, the light. There's no one other than me that can lead you to the Father. There's no way to get to him other than me. Everyone will, will, will pay some uh, deference to and hat-tip Jesus in some way. But Jesus doesn't return the favor. That is interesting. It's a unique aspect of Christianity. It's exclusivity, as people would say. But just be aware of the fact that when you work a case and you have like multiple suspects, and I've had cases where I've had like, you know, eight suspects for one woman's murder. And when I first start, I'm like, wow, they all look pretty good. And then you start working them down, and you realize, okay, well, if one guy's going to emerge with the unique opportunity, the unique window in which he can work, the unique ability to make that weapon, the unique uh, anger that he held against that woman, the unique set of circumstances, he'll stand out from the rest. And that he's exclusive in that way. And that typically points that he's probably my guy. The other guys are all kind of common in that way, but this guy stands out uniquely. And here's Jesus who says that I'm the only way. And he says that you can't work your way here anyway. 
all the other ones tell you, you can somehow do something to earn favor with God. I'm here to tell you that it's nothing you're doing. It's everything I do for you. Yeah. And that's a very unique approach. Yeah. He is that unique suspect. Yeah, it absolutely is. That answers the objection. Well, all God's really interested in is me being a good person, right? That that deals with that with that objection. So chapter 11 is your postscript. You bring all of this together, all the evidence that, that you've collected from the fuse and the fallout, uh, this this methodology, and, and, and you show that the appearance of Jesus was the, was the singular event that changed human history. Friends, I, I've been talking with, with author, uh, speaker, apologist, uh, J. Warner Wallace, Jim Wallace, person of interest, why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. Go over, head over to coldcasechristianity.com. Lots of videos, podcasts, books, curriculum, and, and more, personofinterestbook.com. We'll also get you to your favorite book retailer where you can pick up a copy of Person of Interest. Jim, it's been a pleasure and a blessing to chat with you again, brother. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so me. much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I was looking forward to this interview. Thanks so much for having yep, me. Yep, you're very welcome, brother. That's all we've got in this episode, folks. Please share this with your friends. Tell others to go out and get the book. You won't be sorry. God bless you guys. See you next time. Thank you for joining me today for this episode. Soaring Eagle Radio is a broadcast ministry of the Transforming Word Ministries. You may send correspondence or support donations to Dr. Mike Spaulding, P.O. Box 3007, Elida, E-L-I-D-A, Ohio, 45807. Again, Dr. Mike Spaulding, P.O. Box 3007, Elida, E-L-I-D-A, Ohio, 45807. You may also email me at the following email address, drmichaelspaulding at gmail.com. Again, drmichaelspaulding at gmail.com. Until next time, friends, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied to you.